would ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the last part of chapter 1 today as we continue in in our study. If you're not sure where that is in your Bibles, I believe the page reference for the red Bibles and the chairs around you is listed in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 of John, beginning in verse 35 and down to the end of the chapter. John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John, and this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father, in order for us to see what we need to see in this portion of your word, in order for us to understand it, in order for us to believe it, in order for us to be changed by it, we need the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit into our midst. Pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our minds to understand and to believe, and that we would be different as we leave today. Do this, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we began our study of the book of John in September, and here we are in the middle of October, and we're finally getting to the end of chapter 1. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 1, we need to remind ourselves why John wrote this book. 
We don't have to wonder. We don't have to try to read between the lines because John actually tells us his purpose, the reason why he was writing this book. It's at toward the end in chapter 20. He says, these things, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John is writing. He is writing because he wants us to know Jesus. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that, our lives would be changed. So he begins his gospel by telling us who Jesus is. And remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 1. Jesus was in the beginning. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus is God. And all things were made through Jesus. He is life. He is light. A light that shines into the darkness. And then he became man. He dwelled among us. And he brings both grace and truth into this world. This entire chapter, chapter 1, John is telling us about just the first part of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. And as he comes to the middle of chapter 1, the author John tells us about another John, John the baptizer who came as a witness about Jesus, to bear witness and to testify about the one who had been promised, who was coming, Jesus Christ. We read even in this chapter that John had his own disciples, but he consistently and persistently pointed people away from himself to Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as we come to the last verses of chapter 1, I'm guessing that many of your Bibles uh, that you have open in front of you, uh, even the red Bibles and the chairs around you, uh, it, it, they put titles about various sections of the last part of, of uh, chapter 1. And we know that those titles or those descriptions of what we're reading aren't part of the original Greek text. Uh, but the editors of the Bible, the people that put the Bibles out, uh, they tried to tell us what this section is about. And if you look, uh, the section that we've read for today probably says something like Jesus calls his first disciples or Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. Now, that's true. As we read here in these verses, we are seeing some of the very first disciples get connected with Jesus. In fact, most commentators believe that those first two disciples that were John's, that were, are not named initially, that then interacted with Jesus and followed Jesus and were impacted by Jesus, one of them, we're told, eventually was Andrew, most commentators believe that the other one is the author of John, himself telling us how he first got connected to Jesus. But I actually don't think that that was really what John was trying to get at. Yes, he's telling us about some of these first interactions with the disciples of Jesus, but I don't think that's really what John was concerned that we would take away from these verses today. Instead, John is still working on his purpose he is continuing to tell us about Jesus so that we will believe in Jesus and that by believing in him, we will have life and our lives will be changed as a result. 
So what I want us to do today is to look at three things. First of all, Jesus described. Secondly, Jesus proclaimed. And then lastly, Jesus promised. So let's look and see Jesus described. Did you notice all of the descriptors here that were used for Jesus in these verses? There are many and they are important and many of them have their roots in the Old Testament. We get the first one in verses 35 and 36. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, back in verse 29, John the Baptist had seen Jesus coming toward John the Baptist, and he said the same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now it's the next day, and in verse 36, John is standing somewhere with his, these two disciples, Andrew for sure, and likely John, the writer of the gospel, and Jesus walked by. And as he walked by, John again pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Why is it important for us to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God? What does that mean? It is pointing back to the Old Testament practice of sacrificing bulls and lambs and spotless lambs and goats for the forgiveness of sins. But even as we talked about already earlier in our service... We know that the Old Testament sacrifices, a, a lamb, a spotless lamb, never actually paid for anyone's sins. It was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate lamb of God who would come. It was a picture of Jesus who would come and be sacrificed himself as the lamb of God on the cross. He would pay for the sins of his people. The true believers in the Old Testament, those who believed in Jesus when he walked on the earth and for all of his people in all of time. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb and having lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his father, he willingly went to the cross and he was sacrificed. He was slaughtered as the lamb of God. The sins of his people and the wrath of God were put on him so that his people would never have to experience it. He is the lamb of God. But notice as we go on. He's given another description in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw that Andrew and John were following and he said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. John puts that little parenthetical comment in there so that we would know what the word rabbi means. It's simply a word that meant teacher or master. And during the time of the first century, when this was being written, it was a, kind of an honorific title that was given to an ordained or a set apart teacher. And so what we're being reminded about here is that Jesus is our teacher. He teaches us who God is. He teaches us what it means to follow him. He teaches us what the gospel is. He teaches us what it is we are to believe and how we are to live as a follower of him. And if you want to know the meaning and the purpose of life, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you need to have Jesus be your teacher. Do you sit at the feet of Jesus and have him tell you what it is you're to believe? Who God is? What he's accomplished for us in the gospel? 
If you want to have Jesus as your teacher, you need to you need to be a follower of Jesus. That's what these two men did. Rabbi, teacher, where are you going? And they followed him. And when they got there, they stayed with him for the whole day. Do you sit at the feet of Jesus as your teacher? Having him teach you what you need to know about everything regarding faith and life. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the rabbi. He is our teacher. But notice as we go on a little bit further in verses 40 and 41, we get another description of Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. Our confession of faith earlier helps us to see that. The Greek word Christ and the Hebrew word Messiah mean the anointed one, the one who is anointed. And in the Old Testament, lots of people got anointed. The kings of Israel were anointed to go and to be kings. The prophets were anointed to go and proclaim the word of God to the people. The priests were anointed to do the service of the temple. And over and over again in the Old Testament, God pointed to his people and he said, look at all of these people that have been anointed and set apart. They are pointing you forward to the great Messiah who is yet to come. The Messiah who would come and be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest and the ultimate king. He would proclaim the word of God. He would serve as their priest with himself being the sacrifice. He would rule and reign as king over God's kingdom. After Andrew met Jesus, the first thing that he did was to go find his brother, Simon Peter. And he said, he's here. The one that had been promised. The one who is the ultimate prophet, priest and king. The one who is the Messiah. We have found him. He is the long expected Christ. He is the one who came to save and to rescue and to redeem his people. He is the Messiah. As we continue on, we see another description of him in verses 43 and following. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph. There's another descriptor of who Jesus is. He is of Nazareth and the son of Jacob. Excuse me, the son of Joseph. This is reminding us that Jesus was truly a man. He was an actual human being. He came from a place, Nazareth. Now, Nazareth wasn't too impressive to... Nathaniel, he didn't think the Messiah would come from such a place, but he came from a place and he also belonged to a family. He is the son of Joseph. He's from the family of Joseph and Mary. Yes, Jesus is fully God, as we will see again in just a moment. But he was also fully man. He was a human being in every way like we are yet without sin. He dealt with hunger. He got tired. He got dirty and had to wash. He experienced sorrow and pain and he was tempted. And the Bible tells us that because Jesus was fully man, 
He knows what it's like to be us. He can relate to what we go through. He can understand our struggles and our joys and our sorrows and our needs. And he empathizes with us. This is not some distant, disconnected, aloof God that we love and serve. Jesus became one of us. He knows us and he ministers to us. He is of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. As we go on in verses 47 and following, we see even yet another description of him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. This term, the Son of God, is a term that's used in the Scriptures often to point to Jesus' divinity. The Trinity is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, all equally divine. And Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. John the Baptist called Him the Son of God as well in verse 34. And he said that he saw the Holy Spirit descend on Him and that Jesus was the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not only fully human and one like us, He is fully God. He is the second person of the Trinity. That's what Nathaniel confessed after he experienced Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Nathaniel, before we even met, I knew you. Before we even met, I know where you were. I know what you were doing. You were sitting under the fig tree. And in response to Jesus' supernatural divine knowledge, Nathaniel breaks out in worship. You are the Son of God. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere present. The problem that Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden required the solution that only God could provide. And so he did. The Son of God came into this world. But Nathaniel doesn't just call him the Son of God as he breaks out in worship. What else does he say at the end of verse 49? Not only are you the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. You are the ultimate King that all of the Old Testament kings has pointed to. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You came to earth not simply to be a political leader for the, for the nation of Israel, to overthrow the Roman government and become a human king. You are the true and ultimate king of Israel. Not just of a nation, not just of specific people. The king of spiritual Israel, the king of God's people throughout time and throughout place. And King Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he will make all things right. His kingdom will be realized in its fullness and glory. And he is ruling and reigning now at the right hand of the Father. When he comes again, he will rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. And he will be our sovereign and loving king forever. He is the king of Israel. There is one more descriptor here. And this one actually comes from Jesus himself. After Nathaniel. In all of Jesus' supernatural and divine knowledge, breaks out in worship, declaring him to be the Son of God and the King of Israel, Jesus answers him in verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe because of that, he says? 
You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. It's a term that shows up in the Gospels more than 80 times. It's a term that's only used about Jesus in the Gospels. And it's a term that's almost always uttered by Jesus himself as it is here. It's a term that Jesus got from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's dream or vision of a future leader that would come. And in that dream, the ancient of days, the Lord God Almighty says that he would establish the Son of Man as the one who would be clothed with heavenly glory and given universal authority to exercise God's rule on earth with unlimited power. He would rule and reign over all for all eternity. And now Jesus is saying he's here. Jesus is that one. He is the Son of Man. You see all these descriptors and how meaningful they are. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is our rabbi, teacher. He is the Messiah. He is a man from Nazareth who is the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the son of man. He is all these things that these titles and descriptors point us to. That's the Jesus that we are to believe. This is the Jesus that we are to follow. And this is the Jesus that we are to proclaim. And that's the next thing that we see happening in this passage. Jesus proclaimed. Did you notice Jesus being proclaimed in all these different ways in these verses? I think it's very interesting to see there's a proclamation of who Jesus is, but it's done differently by different people. We've got John the Baptist in verses 34 and 36. And how does he proclaim it? He used scripture. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. John called out to others in a direct way with his proclamation and he pointed people to Christ. And he did so in a confrontational way. Getting into people's faces. Pointing them to Christ. And when people came to him and wondered whether he was Jesus, he said, don't call me Jesus. Don't call me Elijah. Don't call me a prophet. I'm just the voice crying in the wilderness to get ready for the one who is coming. Don't be my disciples. Be the disciples of Jesus whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He's the Lamb of God. Believe in him. So we have this proclamation in a very direct and even confrontational kind of way. But then we come to Andrew and Philip in verses 40 through 42 and 43 through 46, and we see a very different way of proclaiming Jesus. Andrew had been impacted by spending time with Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus, and then what did he do? The very first thing he wanted to do was to go get his brother Simon. He wanted Simon, his brother, to experience Jesus as he had. This is a relational proclamation. Andrew shared about Jesus with a person that he was in a relationship with, his own brother. And I want you to notice, he didn't just tell Simon about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 42, the beginning of verse 42. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Probably the most important thing a disciple ever did. He brought him to Jesus. He loved his brother. He was in relationship with his brother. And he wanted his brother to come and see Jesus. Something similar with Philip. 
In verses 43 through 46, Jesus called Philip directly and then Philip followed Jesus. And then what did he do in verses 45 and 46? He went and found a friend of his, Nathaniel. He told him about Jesus. And he said, come, see. And he brought him to Jesus. Again, proclaiming Jesus to someone who is in a relationship with a friend of his. And then there's even another way of proclaiming that we see in these verses. And it's Jesus himself in verse 43 as he calls Philip. He calls him directly. And what does he say? Follow me. It's a clear, understandable invitation. It's not complicated. It's not convoluted. It's not technical. As he did so often in the Gospels, Jesus invited people to follow him. Invited people to believe him. Invited people to be in relationship with him. Do you see all of these different ways that Jesus was proclaimed here? In different ways. All legitimate ways for us to proclaim and witness about Jesus today. Maybe in a more direct and confrontational way, pointing people to Scripture. Maybe through personal relationships with family members or friends, people that we know that we want them to know Jesus. Maybe it's through a simple invitation. Come, follow Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Believe in Jesus. But the point is this. We need to do it. As God's people, we need to be proclaimers of Jesus as well. We need with our words and in our deeds to proclaim Jesus. And listen, you never know how God might be at work when you proclaim Jesus to somebody else. I'm guessing nobody in this room, nobody online, nobody back in C3 knows the name Thomas Bliney. His nickname was Little Bliny, because he was such a short little guy. He lived in the early part of the 16th century in England. He had been deeply influenced by Martin Luther's writings. Luther was a little bit older than Bliny, but they were contemporaries. And being influenced by Luther's writings, Bliny joined the Protestant Reformation that was taking place. Now, Bliny was never known for having a lot of gifts and skills and ability. He never got a sophisticated education. But he loved Jesus and he believed the gospel and he wanted other people to believe the gospel as well. He noticed in the, the, the local church that there was a priest in that church who was someone who seemed to have great learning and, and great ability. But Bliny didn't believe that he understood salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So one day, Bliny went to the church He knew that the priest was hearing confessions in the confession booth. And so he waited for his turn. And then he went in. But instead of sitting down and confessing his own sins, he began to tell the priest about Jesus. He began to tell the priest, you're a sinner. And apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish. Your good works can't save you. You being a priest can't save you. It is only through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. The priest was converted. The priest's name was a man called Hugh Latimer. Some of you know church history well enough to know that Hugh Latimer was one of the great leaders in the English Reformation. He ended up being chaplain to King Edward VI. 
He was martyred for his faith in Christ, and his martyrdom became a rallying cry for the Protestant Reformation. Little Thomas Bliney had no idea. He had no idea how God would use his faithfulness in proclaiming Jesus to somebody. Andrew had no idea that by bringing his brother, that we know as Peter, to meet Jesus, that God would be at work in such a powerful way to raise up one of the beginning, the, 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 the leaders of the beginning church. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you have no idea. You have no idea how God might be at work in your faithful proclamation of Jesus to raise up someone who could be powerfully used in the church and the kingdom of God. Our calling is always to be ready to share the hope that we have in Christ. Our calling is to be faithful in proclaiming Jesus to others, both in our words and in our actions. It's to bring people to Jesus. It is to say, come and see. Come and see Jesus. There's one last thing that I want us to see in this passage. Not only Jesus described and Jesus proclaimed, but Jesus promised. He promised something for those disciples that he was engaging with in these verses. Nathaniel was won over by Jesus' omniscience, his supernatural divine knowledge. He was converted and broke out in worship in verse 49. And then Jesus made a promise to him in verse 50. He said, Nathaniel, are you saying that you, you believed me just because I told you where you were sitting before I met you? You have no idea the greater things that are coming. You believed in me because I showed you that I'm all-knowing and you haven't seen anything yet. Greater things than even these are coming. And then Jesus goes on in verse 51, and this verse should sound familiar to us. It's Jesus drawing on the story of Jacob in Genesis 28 that we read earlier in the service. Jacob's vision of a ladder between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. It was a foreshadowing of some sort of connection that would be established between God and man. Some kind of mediation that would take place between God and man. And here Jesus explains it for us. The latter is the promised son of man who would come, Jesus. And Jesus is, is promising to Nathaniel and promising the disciples then that they were going to see this Messiah at work. They were going to experience his life and ministry. They were going to see the power of God at work in their midst. They were going to see miracles. They were going to see water changed into wine. They were going to see lepers and lame people healed. They were going to see thousands of people fed with just a few loaves of bread and a fish. They were going to see people's lives transformed. They were going to see demons cast out. They were going to see dead people raised from the grave. They were going to see Jesus himself go to the cross and die and yet conquer death by rising on the third day. They were going to see the story of redemption that had been first told in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. They were going to see this story of redemption worked out right before their eyes. What an incredible promise. But the promise that Jesus gives is not just for those disciples then. It's for us disciples now. Jesus was speaking to Nathaniel in verse 51. 
But when he did and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you, those are plural. It's as if Jesus is speaking to Nathaniel, but he says, it's not just about you, Nathaniel. It's about all of you disciples that will become my disciples. It's about all of us throughout time and place. Jesus promises greater things are coming. Now, the promise for us is different. We don't get to experience the same thing the disciples did who lived with Jesus when he was on this earth. But still, there is a promise for us as his disciples. We too will see great and powerful things happening. Great and powerful things in the church. God answers prayer. And if we reflect on that reality... And we think about the, the God of creation, the Lord God Almighty, hears and listens to our prayers and answers our prayers. That is amazing. We will see people who have hard hearts, steeped in sin, slaves to disobedience who are converted and changed. We will see people's lives change from darkness to light. We will see God take his word through the word read and the word preached and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We will see our own and others lives shaped and molded and conformed, changed more and more to what it says that we're supposed to be like. We will get to see the Lord provide everything that is needed to build his church and his kingdom. We have the privilege of the promise of seeing this incredible power at work. Jesus also promises himself to us. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the go-between between God and man. He is our mediator. He is fully paid for all of our sins. He has fully reconciled us to God. He is our advocate with the Father. He is the one who dispenses grace upon grace to us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you think this life is good or bad, regardless of how we think of this life, you see Jesus' promise to you? Something even greater is coming. Jesus himself is coming back. And when he comes back, he's bringing the new heavens and the new earth. He will remove all sin and disease and death. And whatever sufferings we experience in this life, the Bible tells us they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes back. Greater things are yet to come for God's people. So don't lose hope. Believe in Jesus, and by believing in Him, have life in His name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the, the richness of Your Word. And we thank You for John and how he is captured in such meaningful ways in this first chapter who this Jesus is. Would you give us greater faith to believe in this Jesus? And Father, as we believe in this Jesus, would you transform our lives? Make us more and more into the people of your pleasure, of your delight. We ask that you would do it because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.